This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Looks like you've been missing a lot of work lately. I wouldn't say I've been missing it, Bob. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. Everyone, I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and boy, oh boy, today's a big day in the basement. Not only are we having the inaugural meeting of our pirate booty chasing club, but on today's show, please help us welcome the person with the monopoly on all things, uh, monopoly, author of the New York Times bestseller, The Monopolists, Mary Pallant. Also checking in with the buzz in social media from Buzz Index's Jamie Wise. And with news on bank fees from Chime, Shane Steele. We'll also throw out the Haven Lifeline, answer your letters, and share some of my mind-bending trivia. And here they are, two guys who've never had a bank fee in their error, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. OG also always takes second in this beauty contest. <laughs> I do, especially with the hooded sweatshirt on today. See that? It's I trying know. to stay warm in the basement. It's a little, that little nippy down here. Cold snap last night. That man. That. Oof. It's still snowing in the mountains. And of course, of course, mom doesn't turn on the heat because no, no. Uh, once, <laughs> once it's spring, no more heat. Fixed income and all. But you know what would help mom a ton is if she went to stackybenjamins.com forward slash sofi. That's spelled S-O-F-I. You know what you'll find there? You'll find that they're leader marketplace lending, helping with student loans, personal loans, and mortgages. And I said that mom would get a lot out of that. You know, it's, Mom doesn't have a mortgage. She has her mortgage paid off. But if you want to be like mom, you want to pay stuff off earlier, you save a ton of money and interest by heading to SoFi. Here's how it works. Point your browser to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash S-O-F-I. And it'll ask you which type of help you're looking for. From that point, you fill in a few details about you. And like our friend Dan Macklin over at SoFi says, in a few seconds in most cases, you're going to know everything about how they can work with you. Pick from different terms. Check out the interest rates on variable and fixed rate options. Get the ball rolling. In fact, it's so easy. Nick and his team over at MagnifiedMoney.com list their fine print rating is A+. Plus meaning it's all easy to understand. You're looking for lower rates and a good partner. They're looking for a new member to help. For your mortgage, student loans, or personal loans, head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash SOFI. And get this, OG, they throw in 100 bucks if you use our link for your student loan refinance, your next personal loan, stackybedjamins.com forward slash SOFI. The place that calls them number one, by the way, is Magnify Money. Here's what I love about Magnify Money. You know, there's these sites 
where you go to them and you have to give them all kinds of data about you before you're able to use the site. Mm -hmm. Well, when you head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash magnify money, you'll find better checking accounts, better savings accounts, better credit card options, auto loans, if you need an auto loan, all those things. And guess how much information about you you got to give them, OG? Just your IP address. Yes. And that's optional. And only if you don't know how to use the incognito browser, right? Oh, yes. Yes. StackingBenjamins.com forward slash magnify money is the place. I talked about how much money people save at SoFi. You save $450 on average heading to Pack magnify those things money. together and you got yourself 550 bucks. That's like a trip to, well, just about anywhere. Well, that's, listen to this. That's the $100 at SoFi. But the number, and I don't have it written here, but I think it's like two seventy five. The average person oh, saves. Oh, well, okay, so yeah. So three seventy five or four fifty. Yeah. You divide by infinity. Multiplied by six. It's like it's like a billion dollars. Got to use your fingers and your toes for that one. Stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnify money, and uh, you'll love it. And by the way, their blog over there, fantastic. We shared a blog post about you, you know how you subscribe to all these things and you can't get off the subscription. There's a, I saw that. I was thinking about that yesterday as I was changing my cable subscription. Yeah. Like great. how many Hulu's, Netflix, Spotify, you know, cable, cell phone, electricity, water, gas. I'm going to cancel half those things. The electricity, the water, the gas. There are some things that are important. Internet Mer is important. Mary Pilon coming down to the basement. But guess what? Our headlines today are full of special guests. Excited that uh, we get to talk today to Jamie Wise and to Shane Steele. So we got that coming. You got the headlines off, OG. So let's move. Oh, good. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamins headlines. And in our first headline of the day, let's reach out to Jamie Wise at Buzz Indexes. He is our social media buzz correspondent. Jamie, welcome back to the show. Happy to be here reporting from the mean streets. What's happening, Joe? <laughs> the mean streets of Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. it's, it's scary out there. You have to have some good spam filters if you're going to be listening to the internet. I've seen I've seen some good tattoos on Pinterest. That could be trouble. Right? Oh, my. Right. Well, let's talk about the index because you guys are up 4% so far for the year, 12% over the last 12 months. But there's some names in it specifically that I'd like to get to that you've seen a lot of buzz around. And one that it's interesting the internet kind of called was U.S. Steel. Tell me about that. Yeah, you know what? Sometimes, I don't want to use the word lucky, but it's good to get a miss. It's almost as good to get a miss as it is to get a win. You know, U.S. Steel has been a name that's certainly been in the news. It's it's sort of a favorite stock for people to talk about around Trump and his policies and his pro-growth potential tariff policies and what that could mean for, for the steel industry at large. Obviously, the stock had a huge run since he was elected. We were sort of neutral on it right out of the gate. And then we started seeing people online catch up with that positive tone, you know, through the end of last year and into the couple first couple months of this year. But then something interesting changed for us. And, and we started to see sentiment while still positive falling from its peak that we saw um, maybe in February. And then right about a week or two ago, a week before, you know, we rebalanced the index, sentiment actually went negative on the name broadly across online forums and, and people's views on whether Trump would actually be successful in putting these policies in place and how that could translate through U.S. Steel's performance. And then we rebalanced the index in April. Sentiment continued to be negative. We kicked the name out of the index. A week later, it reports earnings and just posts a huge miss. 
earnings targets missed, forward guidance cut, stock down 30% since its reported results, a name that we're happy that we were able to listen to the to the broader conversation and get out of our index and sort of miss that move to the downside. Do you guys look at, at steel in general as a commodity and then the names inside of it? Or does the index look specifically for like a hashtag US steel or hashtag the ticker symbol? How does that work? R- Right now, we're just looking at the company. You know, for commodity names, most of these operating companies have so much more leverage to the actual commodity than, you know, just the potential price of the commodity itself that we're really more interested in that, right? People play these names as leveraged views on on commodities, whether it's steel or gold or even oil in some cases. Chesapeake would be a good name in that example. So we're, we're really focusing more on the conversation around the stock itself from an investment perspective, as opposed to people's views on the commodity. We're going to save that for another day. What's what's interesting to me is a company like Twitter shows up in the buzz index. Yet, obviously, it seems to me that just there's a lot of been a lot of negativity around that company. Jack Dorsey, though the CEO, just a couple of days ago, bought nine and a half million dollars worth of shares. What's the general consensus when you look at the buzz, Jamie, around Twitter? Yeah, this has been a consistent name in our index, even though the stock has had some struggles and, and has some moments of um, uh, hope, maybe we'll call it, and then sort of some reality when earnings come in. You know, the analyst community, Wall Street in general, in general is has always been negative on this stock, right? They just don't see the earnings potential. They don't see the subscriber growth that other platforms are enjoying. But the online community really sees it in a different way. They see the brand value in Twitter. They see that it has a place in the online ecosystem and that that place is not going away. And, and for that, they ascribe really much more value to the company than the analysts give it credit for. It's it's a contrarian play, you yeah. know, from the collective versus the analyst community. But I tend to agree with the with the broader consensus on this stock. This is a wonderful platform. It's still trying to find its place in the universe in terms of monetizing that user base. But it's it's no doubt established as a leader in news distribution. Everything breaks on Twitter. Everyone has to have a Twitter relationship. Um, when you think of the brand value of Twitter versus something like Snapchat, which is more maybe like a fad, we see Twitter as having a much longer life cycle in the online community. I don't think that platform is ever going to go away. Um, they just need to really figure out how to monetize it properly or perhaps put it into another platform and have a company sale and monetize some value that way. Well, it certainly seems like they started to beating earnings just this uh, last quarter. I mean, a big, a big surprise. Nobody expected them to end up as, as well as they did. Another well, let's qualify I- that. Nobody being the analyst community, well, but good, I think good, the good online point. community <laughs> saw it coming. That's, that's right, apparently. Or it wouldn't be in the uh, buzz index. Uh, uh, I wanted to ask you about that. Snap, uh, not in the index. Snap, Snap the, the parent company of Snapchat. Yeah, we want to see a little more history before we include names like that in the index. And, you know, for us, we've talked about this before. What's really important is consistent volume of conversation um, and being able to measure that over time so that we have confidence in whatever the crowd is saying will be predictive. You know, Snap just came out. Obviously, there's a lot of conversation about the stock, you know, since IPO. But we want to see that that high level of conversation is able to be maintained over the coming you know, quarter or two before we'll have enough confidence that, um, you know, the insights that we can see from that conversation will be predictive. So we're going to give it a little more time to season itself. Got it. And then I want to ask you about this. There's a big fight going on between Apple and Qualcomm. Most people, when they hear that, they're like, oh, Qualcomm's going to get, uh, but most most people, once again, being analysts, 
I, I keep reading that Qualcomm's going to get crushed because this is their number one source of revenue is this patent dispute with Apple that Apple stopped paying. Yet the collective seems to believe that Qualcomm is a buy. Yeah, they, they really do. So, you know, we read all these scary headlines, Apple goes nuclear on Qualcomm and those types of things. And and certainly um, this is an issue that needs to get resolved. I think when people look at Qualcomm, they're still looking at it as a, you know, a really good value type play, right? The stock is trading at a forward earnings multiple that is well below market average. It's giving a dividend yield over 4%. It's really priced for a worst case scenario. And I think uh, online people kind of view the stock from that perspective. We even saw it last week when, you know, those big headlines came out on Apple. The stock opens up down 5% on that announcement on those headline news uh, on the headline news, but then rallies straight back all day long, just grinds right back to unchanged and then actually finishes up on the day. And we're seeing that. We saw that after the first announcement when when the when the uh, the lawsuit was first announced at the end of December, you know, the stock cratered and we got an immediate buy signal on the stock from the online community. It's really maintained that buy position. And if anything, since the last announcement, bullish sentiment that we can observe has actually gone up on the stock. So don't count this stock out yet. Don't let the headlines scare you. There's value in this name. Resolution will come. People see that long-term vision when it comes to the stock. Well, sorry to keep you for so long, but I just find this fascinating, Jamie. Just all the all the cool stuff going around with some of these headline names lately. It's the Buzz Index. It trades under ticker symbol BUZ. You can find out more at stackybenjamins.com forward slash B-U-Z-Z. I need to have a little disclaimer here. I own shares of, of Jamie's Buzz <laughs> Index. It works for me, but obviously you need to do your own homework. Jamie Wise, thanks for hanging out, man. Hey, thanks. And one last thing, Joe, uh, I'd like to encourage everyone to head over to buzzindexes.com. We've had a little change to our website, oh. a really easy sign up form for your listeners there. We're putting up flash notices at least a couple times a week when things are buzzing in real time. And it's a great way to stay abreast of what's happening online. Oh, awesome. And you get there by going to stackybedjamins.com forward slash B-U-Z-Z. Thanks a lot, Jamie. Thanks, Joe. And our second headline today comes to us, uh, press release out of San Francisco. There is a new quarterly bank fee finder report exposing the impact of hidden bank fees on Americans. And you know what? We actually have her coming down to the basement right now. Shane Steele from Chime. How are you? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Joe. Well, it's it's great that you can hang out in our neighborhood long enough to talk about Digit and then a couple weeks later just come roaring back to Texarkana again. You're amazing. Uh, no problem. I am so happy to do it. <laughs> Well, let's talk about this report because you guys really dug into bank fees and you found some surprising things. Right. There's a tool called bankfeefinder.com that we launched uh, a couple months ago. And this is our first report where we're sharing the data from about 5,000 reports that have been generated. Um, and the, the tool lets people connect their bank account and find out how much they're actually paying in fees. What we found is that the average is about $330 a year. Wow, that's a ton of money. And I saw you also showed that nearly nine in 10 users found fees. And I bet a lot of those people were surprised. Yeah, absolutely. We know that people dramatically underestimate how much they're bank paying in bank fees, uh, which is the reason that we wanted to create this tool. We feel that there's really a massive distribution of wealth that's happening because of bank fees. A lot of that has to do with overdraft fees. And in 2016, banks made $33 billion just in overdraft fees. Doesn't that make and you sick? 
Yeah, and that's coming from all kinds of Americans. The average was 330 in total fees and 250 of that on average was from overdraft fees. Let's go through because you broke this down by ages, uh, baby boomers, Gen X and millennials. Between the three of those, Shane, who paid the highest fees? Yeah, there's some very interesting results. So by generation, fees go up with age. So millennials paid under the average around 308 a year. Gen X paid 400, so above average. And boomers were at 413, just a little above that. Interestingly, also that college students were paying the least, which probably isn't surprising given that college students usually get a break on some bank fees, but only until they graduate. So there's sort of a college grad beware story here. Right. Well, there's another story too, which is that it seems with older people paying the highest fees, I would think, Shane, that older people are more likely to to do their business at traditional banks, which is where the fees are coming from. Yeah. And we also broke down the bank fees by bank. So we kind of know which banks are getting the most in terms of fees. And it is the traditional banks. Um, So Bank of America had the highest at almost $500 a year in fees. And that's followed by Wells Fargo and Chase. I can't believe uh, Bank of America was number one in that. No, I'm just kidding. I can totally believe it. That's, we, <laughs> we rip on Bank of America nonstop here. And I guess it's well-deserved. $497. What was it for Wells Fargo and Chase? For Wells Fargo, it was 302 a year. And for Chase, it was 265 a year. You say also that people are doing much worse than they think. What do you mean by that? Yeah, there's some research where uh, people were asked how much they think they're paying in bank fees, and they guesstimated around $5 per month, um, which is about you know 20% of what they're actually paying on average. Wow. So let's, let's talk about the tool that you guys launched. I love this uh, data, by the way. Thanks for coming down to the basement and explaining this. But let's talk sure, about your absolutely. tool. Uh, how do people get it? What does it do? Yeah, so you just go to bankfeefinder.com. You log in with your bank credential, so your username and password for your bank, and it goes through and looks at actually what you've paid in bank fees and will send you an email with a link to view your report. And it's sort of like a a dashboard where you can see what your total fees were. Um, It shows you actually all of the different accounts that you have open, because we know that was an issue with Wells Fargo where there were accounts being open. So it'll give you a report on all the accounts you have open at that bank. And it'll show you an itemized list of fees by category. So it breaks it down by monthly fees, ATM fees, overdraft fees, and then a category of other fees, which has a bunch of things in there. So you can see the actual transaction date, what the amount was. And then within each category, it'll show you how you're comparing to the U.S. average. And then we give you a report card, a grade at the bottom of the report. And then, of course, we want to provide you with some information around how you can avoid those fees going forward. Nice. And obviously some of that, I've, I, I would have to think some of that involves the, your Chime app. Oh, absolutely. You know, Chime is a bank account that believes you shouldn't pay fees to have a bank account. So we have no monthly fees, no minimums, no overdraft, no transfer fees, no international fees. And we have a huge fee-free ATM network. But people don't have to, let's be clear, Shane, people don't have to use the Chime app to use the fee finder. No, no, it's a separate uh, website. Yeah. Uh, separate from Chime, you know, built by Chime. But, you know, we wanted to create this because we do think there is a problem with the fact that many of these fees are hidden from Americans. Um, You know, the fact that people are underestimating how much they're paying and overdraft fees are really the the big culprit here. And there's data from uh, Pew Charitable Trust that looked at overdraft fees. And it turns out more than half of people who were hit with an overdraft fee didn't even know that they were enrolled in a so-called overdraft protection plan. 
Um, and so we think that's that's a real problem that, you know, people are being tricked into playing these fees. And we wanted to create a tool that would help people understand what's really going on. My biggest issue, and this is maybe another discussion that you and I have are going to have because the, I don't have enough time to get into this. But most of these fees, Shane, are on the backs of people that can least afford to pay them. And that's what kills me. If you're paying yep. overdraft fees, you have very little money and, you know, not much financial literacy, probably. That's the part that kills me. Hey, thanks for coming down to the basement and sharing the study. I'll also link to it in our show notes at stackybedjamins.com. Sounds great. Thanks for having me, Joe. Thanks a ton. How about that for a break, OG? A break of uh, not having to do headlines for the first time. How about that? Big, big thanks to Shade Steele and to Jamie Wise for coming down to the basement. But I got to tell you, we got the big star waiting up in the wings, Mary Pallon, not only the author of The Monopolist, of course, this New York Times bestselling book about the history of Monopoly that we're about to talk about with her. She, did she send you a copy of it? Uh, she, she did not. I actually, I actually was looking at my copy of the book because you know what a board game Oh, you do have a copy of the book. Yeah, but I've had it for a long time. Somebody gave it to me as a gift a couple of years ago. And I'm like, why have we not had Mary on the show? So she's been great enough to to come down. Of course, she's worked at the Wall Street Journal where she covered various aspects of personal finance and the financial crisis for both print and online editions. She was a staff reporter at the sports desk of this place called the New York Times. She regularly appears in the New Yorker, Esquire, Bloomberg, Businessweek, Vice, New York, and uh, many other publications. She also regularly appears on a variety of TV and radio programs, has been a producer for NBC Sports and 2016 Rio Olympics. Uh, Mary, Mary is versatile. She's done a ton, uh, of stuff, ton of stuff. going on. But, but the highlight of her career, I'm sure, is coming down to the basement. Let's say hello to Mary Pallon. And Mary Pallon joins us. Have a seat, Mary. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, I'm better now because nothing I like better than talking about board games. So I want to know, because after reading the book, I was very curious. Did you just get curious about Monopoly? Did you get your butt kicked at the game one day and say, you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna figure out how this whole <laughs> thing works. Uh, the short answer is yes, but there, it was even stranger than that. So I um, have always loved board games and puzzles and all of that good stuff. I grew up in Oregon where it's very cold and rainy. So we had a lot of indoor recess time. And yes, I did get my butt kicked, particularly by my older brother all the time. And my family played Monopoly around Christmas pretty regularly. So I loved the game and I grew up playing a, a fair amount of it. So um, in 2009, I was uh, part of the money investing team at the Wall Street Journal and actually writing a lot about different business and finance related things. And as I'm sure you remember, in 2009, that was pretty depressing. Um, you know, every day the market just seemed to get lower and lower and lower. So I was going to mention in passing something about Monopoly having been invented during the Great Depression because that was the story that was tucked into my family's game box, as it was with a lot of other people's. And I was looking around at, you know, the journal then um, especially was just uh, a place where every sentence had to be bulletproof. And I was looking around and around and it just wasn't adding up. You know, I couldn't figure out where this game came from. Why weren't people talking about where it came from? The Darrow stuff, the patent seemed off to me. And, you know, an editor was kind of joking with me. He's like, we're writing about credit default swaps, we're writing about mortgage-backed securities and derivatives. And you're doing all this like complicated banking reporting and can't find out the thing about Monopoly. <laughs> and so I just like, it drove me nuts. And I, um, 
I did this reporting trick that a lot of people do, which is when you don't know something, you call counterparties in lawsuits because if you either have been sued by someone or are suing someone, the odds are you're going to know something about them or know who who to talk to. So I had seen Antimonopoly and I saw the website and it hadn't been updated in a while. And I saw that they had been involved in some litigation back in like the 70s or 80s. And I thought, I know, I mean, this is just like a last ditch effort. So I reached out to Ralph Onspach, who started Antimonopoly. And I said, you know, hey, I know this sounds totally crazy. I'm a reporter at the journal. I'm just trying to find out what the deal is with Monopoly. And he immediately got back to me and said, oh, it wasn't invented during the Great Depression. It was invented by a woman at the turn of the century. And I spent 10 years of my life fighting this. And like that unspooled into what eventually became a journal article and then the, the book. So the idea of doing a book wasn't even on my radar, let alone um, spending five years of my life researching a board game. It's uh, <laughs> So it's all been one big kind of crazy accident. I was trying to think when I was reading the book where I first had heard the whole Charles Darrow story. And I think... And correct me if I'm wrong, Mary, but I think that in the older versions of Monopoly, they used to tell that story in the back of the rule book, didn't they? Yes. It depends what generation of the game you're talking about. But when Parker Brothers started manufacturing the sets in the mid-1930s, Charles Darrow and his kind of rags to riches story that he had gone into his basement and, you know, innovated and created this game and it saved him and Parker Brothers this beloved family-run New England board game, you know, company from the brink of destruction. That story, that became part of the marketing of the game from the time Parker Brothers started making it on pretty intensely. And that was something I, you know, became fascinated with too, is how the story just got repeated and how Darrow had been propped up and marketed with the game. And what was interesting too about that, and I didn't realize this when I first started reporting, is that we think of, you know, authors get marketed as the authors of the book, or you you market a film based on who's starring in it, in some cases, maybe who's directing it. But board games to have an inventor story, that was really new at the time. The idea that board games just kind of, you know, appeared, or mar- you cared that Milton Bradley or Parker Brothers made it like the publisher, but you maybe didn't care about the um, person in the R&D lab who was, you know, tinkering around and making it happen. So... Yes, the Darrow story was tucked into the games very early on and retold over and over and over again. But I pulled out my one, you know, my latest version and it's not in there anymore. But let's talk about, let's talk about. Interesting. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder why that, maybe you know why that is. You know why that is that they, they seem to not tell that story anymore? Yeah. So we're jumping ahead a little bit, but one of the things that, um, so when Ralph Onspach, who made this game called Anti-Monopoly, started his legal battle with Parker Brothers, this was 1973. And this went on for years and years and years. And he very publicly talked about the Darrow story being, you know, pretty dubious. And as his voice got louder and he was getting all this attention in the press at the time for his lawsuit, there was this kind of fascinating kind of readjusting, I'm kind of putting air quotes around (laughs) that, of the story. So, you know, maybe Darrow was the, um, you know, sold the game instead of invented it. And maybe like... So, and to this day, this continues. And, you know, I, over the years, have kind of grabbed different versions of their website where you see this happening too, where it went from, you know, telling a story that was all out false to um, just deleting all the parts. And I, I, I haven't checked recently, but like deleting the story altogether from the website. And I find that fascinating that they've just kind of peeled away at the story. And one thing that hasn't been on their website, and I don't expect there to be anytime soon, is 
two words, which are Lizzie and McGee, um, the woman who actually created the game is still nowhere to be found in, in their marketing, at least as far as I can tell, which is staggering to me all these years later. Which is fascinating. Uh, Lizzie McGee's soul story, which is the first part of the book, which which I won't, I don't want to dive into this too far, Mary, because if people want the whole thing, they can, they can read the, and they should read the book. But who is she? Who is the real inventor of Monopoly? Oh, sure. So Lizzie McGee was this completely fascinating woman. And I approached kind of the first part of the book as writing almost her mini biography because no one had really done that yet. And she's, by the way, writing a um, profile of someone who's famous for being obscure is is more difficult as a journalist sure. than I had anticipated. So Lizzie McGee was this uh, woman who was born in Illinois in 1866. Her father, James McGee, wasn't just politically active. He was one of the early voices in the Republican Party. And he had traveled with Abraham Lincoln during the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And the Republican Party at the time, of course, was very connected with um, the abolitionist movement. And he was a very influential um, newspaper owner and very um, progressive. The word progressive kind of gets tossed around and has a million different meanings depending on what time period you're talking about. But the idea that he would have been a little bit more edgy in terms of his views towards women, and particularly his daughter, um, and the potential that um, little girls had, you know, was not far-fetched considering what his political beliefs were. So he very much infuses a lot of that into his daughter, and she grows up in this environment where politics are talked about in a very sophisticated manner. Um, There's a high level of literacy, Uh, obviously. She was around newsrooms a lot. And she had worked as a stenographer, which was an occupation at the time that was very accessible to women um, when not a lot of other things were. She moves around quite a bit. She moves to Chicago. She moves to Washington, D.C. And she's very active in the single tax movement. And this is a rabbit hole I went really deep into for the book because I knew not much about single taxes. And I was writing about taxes at the Wall Street Journal, and I'm a history nerd. It was this movement started by this man named Henry George, who was this extremely charismatic speaker and was very concerned with kind of the the rising wealth, you know, in the late 1800s and in the early 1900s. He died in 1897, but these themes kind of stuck around. So when she lived in D.C., you know, she was really involved with this group, which was also a big cradle for women's rights, which was another one of her big causes. And she made this thing called the Landlord's Game as a teaching tool to teach people about the evils of monopolies and Henry George's philosophy. That's what's amazing to me. So- is it fair to say that Monopoly, Mary, was first made as a game, not as fun, but to teach people that one person ends up with all the prizes and everybody else just gets screwed? Absolutely. I mean, what's so funny to me about it, too, is that when Lizzie creates her original Landlord's Game and she receives the patent for 19, in 1904, she has two rule sets. She has a monopolist rule set and an anti-monopolist rule set. And it's the monopolist rule set that kind of catches off and is played, you know, for decades by folk players. And it's you can read into human nature however you want. The fact that that version of the game, the one that we play today, where it's all about clobbering each other, is the one that people played more. There's such a great irony to me in that. And I think that one of the questions I've gotten a lot over the last couple of years is, you know, Monopoly and how it's used with children and teaching. And one of the values that Monopoly, the board game, teaches that I think is, you know, misleading is this idea that, A, you only get rich by squashing other people and B, you, that there's only so much wealth to go around. I mean, I think in real life, you can be prosperous and not at another person's expense. And also that the pie of success is large and we can all have slices of it. And so 
I think when you think about what Monopoly actually teaches and why someone like my older brother had so much fun with it, um, <laughs> it is almost the opposite of what the inventor was actually trying to do. Right. And that doesn't surprise me because you talk about how the guys at, I think it was Williams College that really played the game a lot and, right. and loved that. But what about, you also talk about it became popular with the Quakers. Why would the Quakers take to a game like this? Right. So Lizzie McGee patents her game in 1904 and it kind of goes viral, but like the turn of the century way, which means it takes a few years and travels slowly and by hand. And it was played particularly by kind of intellectuals in the Northeast, kind of left on the political spectrum. So Scott Neary, who is a very known socialist and a professor at Wharton, he had played the game. Um, there's evidence some of the early brains in the ACLU had been playing um, the game. And then um, the Quakers of Atlantic City, you know, it doesn't surprise me that they're kind of next in this lineage. And they do some really important things to the game. They modified to make it a little bit more simple to play with children. Uh, the Quakers in Atlantic City that were playing this were teachers. So it would make sense that they'd be interested in that and that would be an area of expertise. The Quaker faith is fascinating. I wasn't raised Quaker and I, I didn't grow up around a lot of it. So my research for the book was kind of my first entree into it. And um, silence is a big part of their faith. And so some of the earlier versions of Monopoly had a lot more noise and uh, things associated with the auctions. So they put fixed prices on the board to kind of decrease the amount of shouting that's going to be going on with the game. Although if you heard my family play that, play it, you would never know that that had happened. And the other thing that they do that ends up sticking for a long time is that versions of Monopoly pre-1935 People localized the boards. So they, if you were playing in Boston, you would have Boston street names. If you were playing in New York, you would have New York street names. And the Quakers of Atlantic City, of course, put on Atlantic City property names. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this is, you know, Atlantic City in the late 1920s and the early 1930s was a hub of immigrants and just a complete cultural melting pot. It was seen as a getaway for people in Philadelphia and in New York City. And if you look at census records, it was still a very deeply segregated city. And a lot of the kind of purple and light blue properties, you know, Mediterranean, Baltic, Oriental, were areas where they were either African-Americans were living and who often were working at the big hotels and casinos, but not permitted to be served there, and immigrants from Asia. So the board has this fascinating kind of, it's, it's a historical artifact in some ways of how people, including progressive Quakers who were very much, you know, connected with helping refugees in the States for years and have this huge tradition of doing that and of civil rights and have all these great causes they've been, you know, connected with. I don't know if it was intentional social commentary or not, but I do find it fascinating that the board has this whole other dimension to it that me and, you know, millions of other people who just, you know, throw our tokens around the board wouldn't even think twice about. You see these, you know, you, you go into the anti-monopoly lawsuit in depth, and that's it's very fascinating. You talk about George Parker. You talk about Milton Bradley. You talk about some of these uh, characters. But one thing I'm really curious about is it, it seems like, you know, uh, Parker Brothers went after anti-monopoly hard, but I see these mm -hmm. USA monopolies all over the place, right? What's the deal with USA monopoly where you talk about in the past, they would regionalize these boards. Well, USAopoly, they've got Detroitopoly, where I'm from originally. Right. Were there lawsuits there too and they lost? How did they get away with it? So it's kind of ironic, right, that, you know, a century later, the, the game is kind of going back to its customized folk roots. So USAopoly makes those 
through a license and partnership with Hasbro. Uh, okay. Hasbro, who owns Parker Brothers. So it's kind of with the company's blessing and permission that they do this. It's not like they're just... And, and some of that is a result of Ralph Fox lawsuit. So, you know, obviously Hasbro knows about that, but they're also receiving residuals and, and money from that is my understanding of yeah, how that works. It. Got it. I always wondered about that. So uh, it's funny, when you first dug into this, did you think at all that the world of board games could be such a sordid place? I had no idea. I mean, I just didn't even know how complicated the history was going to be. And I mean, now the book is out, so I can talk about this, for, but, but, but for five years, you know, I was the nut job obsessed with Monopoly and <laughs> questioning, you know, and now, I mean, since then, even more crazy stuff has happened in terms of this whole idea of fake news and like right. accuracy and journalism. And I constantly ask myself, you know, you'd spend these days. And the other thing is this, this was so different than the work I do for newspapers and magazines where most of the people were deceased. So it's not like you can pick up the phone and call someone. And I constantly was wondering, like, why am I so obsessed over this, like, board game stuff? And then I kind of came to this conclusion. I've said this to a lot of people in the book tour, but, like, if we can't get the story of Monopoly right, what hope is there for anything else? <laughs> and I think that the world is full of all these objects and all these innovations and all these ideas that are in our, you know, ecosystem and our pop culture and books and music. And we seldom question where they came from. And I just think that the history is full of Lizzie McGee's. I think there are a lot of people who kind of chip away at the world and help it make, make it what it is and make these contributions. I think there's the Henry George's too, right? I mean, Henry George was sure. this figure who obviously inspired Lizzie McGee. I don't think without Henry George, we would have a monopoly. And he was hugely popular in his day. He was one of the most famous people in the country. And today, nobody knows who he is. So you have these kind of like mildly like existential moments where you're just like, who gets remembered and who gets forgotten? And like, how did somebody miss all of this? And how crazy that this lawsuit, you know, years after in the 70s is what unearthed the whole story accidentally. So I don't know if that answered your question or not, but <laughs> it seems like a silly idea for a book. And then once you start getting into it, there's like definitely a dark undercurrent to the whole thing for me, at least. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating. It was like reality TV, you know, turn of the century style. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the book is called The Monopolist. And Mary, it's available everywhere, right? It is. Yeah. By millions of copies to all of your friends. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with us and telling us a little bit of the story. I appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And it's almost time for what the ladies call the boardwalk of this show. My trivia. But first, have you thought about joining my new club? You see, collectively, I think we're all just a little tired of being broke, aren't we? So I've set up a closed Facebook group with a pirate treasure theme. I call it our Booty Chasing Club. It's still early, but people are pouring in and, and this group is buzzing with investment group ideas. Check this out. Gertrude posted right away about commodities. She must think that sweet things are where the money's at because she said she's ready to be a sugar mama. She's gotten 10 replies already. My good friend Steve from the butcher shop's talking about diversification. He apparently can't wait to start stuffing his meat into some Hot Pockets. That guy, he's going to be rich. I'm so excited about our money-making club. I told Steve, hey, we ought to have our first get-together at his butcher shop. And he thought, that's, that's a great idea. So come on down and join us. But first, invest a little time in my trivia. How about this one? Here's today's Monopoly-related question. How many hundreds of versions of Monopoly has Hasbro released to date? I'll be back with your answer after I call over to the meat shop and tell them to get the meeting kicked off. 
exciting. Looking to shake up and pay down your personal and student loans? We'll partner with a company that's shaking up the business of lending. According to MagnifyMoney.com, SoFi is the leader in every area in which they compete, whether it's student loans, personal loans, some areas you wouldn't expect, like mortgages. Here's what Dan Macklin, co-founder of SoFi, had to say about how SoFi is shaking up the lending industry. Yeah, SoFi is a very different finance company uh, compared to the traditional guys out there. For example, we host happy hours and dinners all around the country. We've now hosted them in more than 35 states and we've had 8,000 people attend these. And people come along and sometimes I think they're gonna get a sales pitch, but they don't. It's just a chance for them to to meet each other, to meet new friends and, and really great things happen from that. And we get to know our customers really well um, and, and people really enjoy the events. So when's the last time your bank called you up and said, hey, let's go to happy hour. Even better, SoFi is going to give you $100 when you get approved through our link, stackybenjamins.com forward slash SOFI. You could use that to take us to happy hour. Isn't that a great idea? (laughs) Probably not. They're your number one choice of refinancing your loans. The next stop in your path to financial security is SoFi. That's stackybenjamins.com forward slash SOFI. Stackers, we get used to those same daily routines, don't we? We wake up at the same time every morning, brush our teeth, park the car in the same spot at work every day, recite jokes in the mirror to be funnier than that jerk of the water cooler. Or is that just me? Here's one thing you shouldn't make routine, using the same credit card from the same bank just because that's what you've always done. Nick Clements from Magnify Money explains why. I mean, it's never been a better time, honestly, to find a credit card, especially given the lucrative sign-on bonuses that are out there. Chase just recently had 100000 on their reserve card. I think we're at a point right now where credit cards are extremely profitable for large banks, and they are really wanting to get more customers, and so they're, they're rolling out the red carpet. So I would just say, if you have had a credit card for more than two or three years, chances are there's a much better deal out there for you today. So why stick with that same old card with those rewards that haven't changed in years? You can use MagnifyMoney.com to always find best in class, including better interest rates. And don't only use Magnify Money for credit cards. Nick and the team have built the site from the ground up to help with personal loans, student loans, and mortgages. Average person saves $450 in interest when they hit stackcubedgements.com forward slash Magnify Money. Welcome back, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I can't help but feel a little disappointed right now. I called Steve's place, and no one was there. Not even Steve. Wasn't I pretty clear when... What's this? Hey, wait. Everybody's posting pictures at the bar. Check out this post from OG's brother. Appetizers on OG. Listen to... This other guy can't wait to start dipping corn dogs? Honestly, I don't even... I don't even understand these business concepts. The only thing a corn dog needs is mustard. Why is everyone Why is everyone at the dive bar? Wasn't I clear when I said we need to get together at the meat market? I uh all right, I got to get to the bottom of this, but first, let's get back to the trivia. I asked you earlier, how many hundreds of versions of Monopoly has Hasbro released to date? The answer, 3 freaking 100. That is a lot of Monopoly money right there, baby. No wonder it's so devalued. See ya!
Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's or rather life insurance's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they're disrupting the life insurance industry by focusing on the things that you value most, your family and your time. That's why they've created the only affordable term life insurance policy you can purchase entirely online without a medical exam. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to learn more about life insurance the modern way. That's stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life. You know, NOG, uh, Jerome Benzie and Matt Wolf from Haven Life were nice enough to help us on our new Thursday webinar last week. So if you get the stacker, which is our newsletter, or if you are in our green room, our closed Facebook group, uh, stackybenjamins.com forward slash green room to get there, you'll know that we had we, we had a great time. Any people that can joke about life insurance concepts are friends of mine. Like we had some we had some pretty good joking. You know, like a Friday at their office down at like TGI Fridays, like they're cracking a a joke where the the punchline is, and then, and then he said he had 15 year level term. <laughs> Return of premium. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah. Good stuff there. Uh, we're throwing out the Haven Lifeline right now, though, to our friend Lenny. Say hello, Lenny. Hi, Joe, OG, and Doug. I got a fun one for you today. But first, a little background. My regular job, I'm squarely in the 25% tax bracket. I max out my 401k, and I also max out my Roth IRA. I've recently picked up some freelance work on the side, where I'm making approximately $1,000 a month. So here's my question. How do I avoid, that's avoid, not evade, paying up to 50% taxes on this freelance money with 25% going to federal, 15% to self-employment, and 10 to city and state taxes? Are there any tax-deferred retirement accounts I can open with this money, such as a SEP IRA or a solo 401k? Is there a reason for me to possibly change my W-4 withholdings to zero, and change my status from married to single to offset some of the tax hits? And is there a reason for me to think about paying quarterly taxes? All right, guys. Thanks a lot. And thanks for the hours of entertainment and zero hours of learning. Nice job, Lenny. Lenny's listened to the show for quite a while. Lenny's got a lot of stuff going on right there, huh? Isn't that a great problem to have, though? He asked, like, you know, 15 different things. It still is a fantastic problem to have. Oh, gosh. Well, we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, I think, right? Like the whole idea of, well, I can't make more money because then I'll be in a higher tax. No, no, no. Make more money. You still have more money. They don't take all of it. They take, you know, like he described, half. But, you know, you're still left with some. So uh, so congratulations on finding a uh, side hustle, I guess, is a nice colloquial term on on that. But a thousand bucks a month, that's, that's some folding money right there. That's, that's good stuff. That could easily be... Uh, trip or two to the casino. If there, if there's a comma in it. Yeah. Yeah. It counts. So a couple of things that kind of spring to mind, every retirement plan option has its pros and cons. And he talked about a SEP IRA. He talked about a solo 401k. Ultimately the whole goal here is how do I reduce my income legally is what he said, of course, so that you know, through deductions and tax credits and that sort of thing. So I'm not taxed as, as, as heavily on that self-employment income. And what he's talking about is he's going to have self-employment taxes, which is 15 and a half percent. He's going to have state taxes and then he's going to have his federal taxes on top of it, which is, which is all that 50. So a couple of things, first of all, probably can't do the solo 401k if he's already maxing out a 401k because your deferral contribution limits 
across all plans. So it doesn't matter if you work at three different jobs that each have 401ks, you're still limited to the 18,000 per year. Uh, SEP IRA would be a, would be an option, but the most that you can defer there is 25% of your uh, take home, 25% of your net. A lot of the things that we see when it comes to tax savings ideas for small business owners, which is kind of what Lenny is now walking into are the above the line stuff. And what I mean by that is all the expenses associated with running his business. He didn't say what kind of business he's in, what kind of freelance work he's doing, but let's say that he's a web designer, right? Well, web designers need computers, right? They need internet connection, those sorts of things. Maybe he drives Uber, right? He's got mileage. Maybe he's got um, meals out. He's got to travel for this new job or something like that. All of those things are business expenses that are necessary to help produce the thousand of income. So the first thing that you want to do is really make a good effort at good accounting for those expenses that you need to run your business. Let's say that it takes him $500 a month to make the thousand. Well, the IRS says, well, now you made a thousand, but you spent 500. So your net now is only 500, right? And so automatically we reduce the tax bill by half by having the, the deductions there, the, the expenses rather accurately presented. So that's probably the first thing. SEP IRA is a great idea. Certainly you got to make sure that you adjust your withholding taxes. You don't want to run afoul of that. Talk to your CPA or accountant on what your withholding needs to be every year so that you're in good with the IRS there. But otherwise, above the line things, that's probably your easiest thing to do right off the top. Yeah, I have absolutely nothing to add. Because I just kind of yammered forever. No, but the expense piece is the big one. When I first became a financial planner, I knew nothing about owning my own business. And I did a horrible job of keeping track of my expenses. And so I ended up owing the IRS a bunch of money that I didn't know. And I know that now, but I had absolutely no proof because I didn't do the homework uh, sufficiently to know all the things that I could actually write off. Yeah, this is the e-myth, right? The e-myth is running a business is a whole lot different than producing the goods and services that the businesses sell. Right. Right. So, um, so you pick up, you pick up one thing, you got to do all of it. Um, and, and, and it's really a, you know, it's a, it's an hour long task once a week, right? You sit down with the business expenses, you go boom, 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 keep a nice P and L, keep a nice, uh, uh, Excel list. You don't have to get a fancy accounting program. You can use fresh books, which is great, but you don't, you don't have to. I mean, you can use a notebook pad. Works just as good. Thanks a ton for the question, Lenny. And uh, I'm I, I am headed to New York next week. I mentioned that on the show before. They are keeping me hopping, OG. I get done every night at 10 p.m. So Oof. from yeah, from 8 a.m. till 10 p.m. And there are three days, so no opportunity for a meetup. I screwed up. I I should have come a day early, so I could have said hi to people because I've had so many I've had so many nice people reach out and say when you come to New York, love to meet you. But I do know that these are happening more often now. So the next time that OG and I or, or OG or I get there, uh, we will definitely try to try to have a meetup. I feel bad that I'm going to be there for, for three days. And they're, they're literally, I just talked to the organizer a couple of days ago. No fat in the schedule. Just can't, can't get that done. 14 hours. Holy shnikes. Yeah, it's going to be, it's a big uh, credit union conference called Co-op Think. And we'll actually do a special episode where I'm taking the microphone and we're going to we're going to talk a lot about not just credit unions but about banking and credit union innovation so that should be cool. Cool. If you've got a question for the Haven Lifeline send that to stackybenjamins.com/voicemail. See how easy it was for Lenny to do that? 
Fantastic. Stackofbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. Doug also brings us down the letters, and uh, today's letter comes to us from Colin. Colin says, Joe, I enjoy learning nothing from you and OG for the last eight months. My question's about rebalancing my 401k account. I get the basic concept of resetting the balance of the funds, but I'm not sure it's the right thing for my situation. Please help me better understand the details of my situation are below. He has a 401k account through T. Rowe Price. He has four equity funds that get 25% of his money each. Based on how he was previously allocating contributions, the funds aren't balanced at 25%. All four funds' cost basis are lower than the current share price. So his funds, he he doesn't tell me what they are, but fund number one is 34.1% of his portfolio that has an 8.85% three-year growth. That must be the average. His second one is 25.1% of the portfolio with eight and a half, uh, three-year growth. His third one, 22.6% of the portfolio with 6.46% three-year growth. And his fourth one, 18.2% of portfolio with 7.22% growth average over three years. He says he hasn't rebalanced based on the above information. The concern, he is going to increase his cost basis. Is this the right idea or am I missing something? Thank you and keep up the good work. Colin from New York. Man, we've got some great news for Colin in New York. Yeah, cost basis doesn't matter. Because you're inside a tax shelter, big guy. Yeah, cost basis is an irrelevant statistic here. Now, if they Data make, point. If, if, if they make him pay trading fees, we might talk about rebalancing less. And as you said several times on the show, OG, there's no math that says, there's no historical data showing that rebalancing a ton of times versus rebalancing once or twice a year really makes a lot of sense. Nothing that I've seen academically that suggests that rebalancing minute by minute, day to day is better than once a year or every eight months or, you know, by the lunar cycles, whatever you feel like doing. Yeah. So I would, I would rebalance that baby now. Well, yes and no. So here's, here's what I was going to say. He doesn't tell us what funds they are, right? but, but they all have similar numbers, especially the first two that you listed. Right. So one of the big I think mistakes from an asset allocation standpoint that people make is they say, well, I've got four funds, so I'm diversified, but they're all the same fund just with a different name. Like the blah, 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 growth fund, the blah, 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 growth and income fund, the blah, 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 aggressive growth fund pretty much is all kind of the same stuff, right? Got like or it maybe, could be. Got maybe 60 or 70% of the stuff. It's like having, you know, a two scoop Sunday with vanilla and French vanilla. Yeah. So, so it could be that, he just has four of the same things, or they could be radically different, right? He could have a U.S. large company fund, an international value fund, an emerging market fund, and a bond fund, right? Those could be the four positions. We don't know. If that's what he has, a, a diversified portfolio in not name only, but in content, then the purpose of rebalancing has nothing to do with, I don't think, too much to do with anyway, trading costs and nothing to do with cost basis in a 401k it has everything to do with buying low and selling high. So there is a position there, you mentioned it, that has 17 or 18% of the weighting uh, of the overall portfolio. And you also have one that has 34%. So one's over your target by give or take 10%. The other one is under by give or take 10%. That's pretty much the swap that you'd want to make. Sell the thing that's now worth more and buy the thing that's increased less. Again, assuming that they're completely different things, right? And what you've done then is gotten your allocation back to the original target that you were shooting for when you did all this work in the first place. And you're also playing the reversion to the mean game. 
Yeah, which is a great point when it comes to rebalancing. You know, things that go up and up aggressively in a short period of time, that's not normal. You know, and things that go down a whole bunch in a short period of time isn't normal either. So you'd expect it to go the other way. Good stuff. Hey, if you've got a letter, I would encourage you to instead use the Haven Lifeline, stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. However, if you need to send me a letter, don't have a microphone uh, attached to your computer, whatever it might be, here's what you do. Send those to joe at stackybenjamins.com. We're going to do a letters episode coming up fairly soon to try to get more caught up because we are, again, as usual, running about two months behind. And finally, if you think you really need help with your financial plan and are looking for good financial help in your corner, a good financial advisor. Guess what? OG's taking clients. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash letter O, letter G. That's stackybenjamins.com forward slash OG. And that'll hook you up with his calendar. You'll get some time on his calendar and you can talk to OG about your situation and see if that's a fit. Got to thank everybody, man. Shane Steele from Chime, thanks for coming out. Uh, Jamie Weiss, and I know Doug's about to thank these people again, but uh, it's it's great having good friends that know what they're talking about, OG. M- makes up for you and I. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> Beat you to it. I was going to say it makes up for you, but but I'll, I'll eat half that cake. You're getting me back for the second place in the beauty contest comment. All right, uh, coming up on Friday, fantastic roundtable. Kicking it off for this eight weeks, Len, Penzo, and Paula Pant, two award-winning bloggers. Of course, Paula has an awesome podcast also over at Afford Anything. They're going to join me in the roundtable talking about a potpourri of topics like we do every Friday. And this is cool. A brand new company launched called Respect OG on our Friday FinTech. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Sorry, I had to do it. It was sitting there, softball down the middle. I'll tell you, this is really neat. It's been rolled out in Chicago and in Milwaukee. But you know how like Uber, you can tell when the Uber driver's getting there and you Mm -hmm. can, you know, and you know everything about them. Well, imagine if grandpa or grandma needs help and, you know, you talk to the agency and they said, yeah, we'll send somebody out. You don't know anything about that person. You don't know if they really came when they said they were going to. It's hard without you being there to actually make sure that that the elders in your family get the kind of care that they need. So home care is something really important and, as you know, something very expensive. Now available through an app. How about that? So we're going to talk to our friend uh, Ross from Respect during the Friday FinTech segment. Good stuff. See you guys back here on Friday. Go stack some Benjamins. So what did we learn today? First, how about Mary Pilon's story? Think you know everything about a subject? It might be better to dig in and find out the whole story because things are not always like you originally think. Second, Shane Steele had a great point. Check out those bank fees. If you're with a big bank, her study shows you might be paying way more than your fair share. But the big lesson? Be specific when creating your money-making club. According to Ethel, booty chasing club is something totally different than an investment club. Ah, who cares? I'd love to stay and talk about everybody down at the meat market, if you know what I mean. Special thanks to Mary Pallon. You can find her book, The Monopolists, in our show notes at stackingbenjamins.com. Special thanks to Jamie Wise from Buzz Indexes. See what all the buzz is about at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash buzz. And special thanks to Shane Steele from Chime. Find more on Chime in our show notes at stackingbenjamins.com or at chimebank.com. 
This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC. The show is created by Joe Saul Sihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Special thanks to Dave Ramsey for dropping by the basement. Unfortunately, we ran out of time for his segment. Maybe next time, Dave. Welcome to the after show. For those of you new to the Stack and Benjamins podcast, this is the part of the show that doesn't exist. OG and I have lots of stuff that we like to talk about. <clears throat> a lot of it has nothing to do with finance. So we decided we would push everything non-finance to this part of the show. So if you're just here for money, number one, if you're here for like big time nuggets, you know, you want like cut and dried nuggets. Why are you listening to Stack and Benjamins show in the first place? <laughs> number one, because we're not that show. Number two is if you want any financial stuff, generally speaking, it, it ain't going to happen here. If it does happen here, it's by, it's, it's a complete accident. So I saw a movie, OG, while we were on break. Uh, actually went to Austin to visit my son, Nick, at uh, the University Austin, of Texas. Massachusetts. Austin, Massachusetts. And uh, I saw this movie starring Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis called Colossal. You don't remember anything last night, huh? really melodramatic, didn't I? Told me that you weren't really on a vacation. That you've been looking for a job for a year. Your boyfriend didn't work out. You are out of control. What? I've packed two things. They're in the bedroom. What? And since you didn't have any money, you decided to move back here. Is there anything else? Don't remember anything. Nature of this Look at that tangle. You know you're watching something that's going to change the course of history. You alright? Yeah. Uh, it's this nervous tick I have. I get this itch. Oh my god. So what you can't see there is that uh, Anne Hathaway's character in this movie, Colossal, has a, she has a nervous itch where she scratches the top of her head. And uh, part, uh, maybe 10 minutes in the movie, you find out that there is a monster that's attacking Seoul, South Korea. And she is watching footage from the night before, which she can't remember because she blacked out because she's kind of a heavy drinker. And uh, the monster stops in the middle of Seoul and itches its head in the exact same way that she does. And she realizes that she just might be the monster that's attacking Seoul. It starts off as a hilarious romp where... 
I, th- I thought, how cool to match these old Japanese, you know, claymation monsters beating up monsters, right? With, with like a uh, romantic comedy type thing. So I thought, what a great mashup. Got decent reviews. So I said, okay, let's go watch it. I love a movie that's different. I thought immediately of the movie Warm Bodies. Did you see Warm Bodies? No. You know, Warm Bodies takes, uh, takes zombie movies and turns them on their head as a zombie and a woman fall in love. And, and, it's, and it's very funny. It came out of left field. I didn't expect it to be good. I really liked it. I can highly recommend Warm Bodies. Sadly, I can't do the same with this one, OG, because it's this cool monster movie. And halfway through, it gets really dark and really preachy. And I think, why didn't you leave it light? Like, what a dorky theme, right? It's just this dumb, dorky theme where she realizes that when she goes out on this playground in the middle of this town where she grew up, that when she steps on it at a certain time, the monster in South Korea does exactly the same stuff she does. So she figures out then how to tell Seoul, South Korea, that it's going to stop. And it's hilarious as she's doing that. But then there's this weird plot that I won't get into that I just think, why, why are you destroying this movie? Like the whole second half of the movie is just absolute garbage. The first half, I, I kept thinking the whole first half of the film. Of course, I'm at the Alamo Draft House, which helps. By the way, Alamo Draft House, if you want to sponsor the Stacky Benjamin Show, <laughs> I am. Yeah, they, uh, I am they, t- they, it seems like they've already sponsored it based on the... Uh- Credit card bills. I am totally all. You're sponsoring them, I guess. More like. I'm totally all about the Alamo Draft. That's my favorite place to watch a film. Talk about a movie theater that gets it. Different than you know, Cinemark. I won't go on my Cinemark rant today. (laughs) Come on, (laughs) we haven't heard a good Cinemark rant at least a year. No, we haven't. No. When was the last letter? It's. uh, I I haven't had time for letters. Too busy doing these. I guess. I don't know. Okay. But I guess the point is either that or sir, madam. Either that or I got a life. One or the other. I must write again the 30th time to express my sincere disappointment in Texarkana's Cinemark movie theater. The popcorn wasn't buttery enough. I do still. Every time, you know, before the movie, in some of them, the end of their trailer reel, they talk about Cinemark. Cinemark trades under the ticker symbol, and they give the ticker symbol. And I'm shorting them. I start laughing out loud every time. Cheryl's like, shh, shh, shh. No, man. I would never invest in this crap company. I would never do it. But anyway, so um, second half of the movie is just horrible. I would not waste your time on this. I don't even know that I would watch it uh, on video. Like It just it, it isn't good, man. It's bad. No, you know what it reminded me of? I had high expectations for uh, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Did you see that with Tina Fey? No. Kind of reminded me of that, where she's a, she's a reporter uh, covering events in the Middle East, and so she goes there, and it looks like it's going to be really funny. Previews look really funny. I saw it. What a dumpster fire. Just, just absolutely horrible stuff. All right, that's my review. I'm in, of, I'm in uh, the middle of watching uh, The Boss, the Melissa McCarthy one where she- um, Oh, yeah, 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 with uh, Kristen Bell. Yep, Kristen Bell. Yep. I got, I'm about 75% of the way through. And? I had to take a break. It is foul. It's very, uh, very foul. But yeah. is it good? There's some funny things. You know how Melissa McCarthy is, right? Like she just kind of almost like she just makes it up as she goes. Sure. You know, maybe that's how she is or maybe that's how it's scripted or maybe that's how she delivers it. But it really seems like she's just kind of 
making it up on the spot. Uh, so she's got some kind of funny rants in there, but um, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. Well, I saw her in that movie a couple of years ago. Her and I think Susan Sarandon, Tammy. And that was just oh, that was that was my that was the worst movie of the year that year. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this one wouldn't be the worst. It's it's you know, there's some funny parts, but it's not it's not her best flick. By any so s- skip Colossal. Go rent Warm Bodies on video. Even you'll like that movie, OG. I promise okay. you will really okay. like it. You, Mrs. OG, good stuff. Free time. All right. Yeah. Right. Well, Stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.